This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. This episode addresses hard topics like eating disorders, sex, and mental health disorders, so it may not be suitable for young listeners or people on the path toward healing. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. Now, if you are listening to this on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. And this is kind of a sneak peek behind everything that we do over in Book Club and the fun that we have and the discussions that we're having and the books that we are reading and the authors that we are celebrating. And so we'd love to have you. We have got room for you. You can find out more about that at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. Okay. All right, girls. Today is our first book club episode of 2022. And to say I'm excited about sharing this conversation with you is an understatement. Y'all know that here in the club, we want to share books and stories that inspire and guide and even just sometimes entertain. But we also want to share some that really ruffle feathers, getting us to think about the elephants in the room. Crossover. See what I did there? 
If not, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to the main for the love feed to investigate. Anyway, I'm digressing. To kick the year off right, the team and I were like, let's start with the idea of therapy. <laughs> let's just let's just go there. First month of the year. And you guys know that I love therapy. It's been really like in no small terms, a, a miraculous tool for my life in the last couple of years. But obviously I know that therapy can feel scary and certainly vulnerable, but we want to talk about it. And that's why we were thrilled to choose the book Group how one therapist and a circle of strangers changed my life. And it's by Christy Tate. And that was our January book club book. I read group last year. Somebody put it in my hands as I had been fairly transparent about my own personal therapy and what I was learning and what was hard about it. And somebody said, oh, you ought to read this book. It's a different type of therapy and it's in a group setting, but some of the themes that you keep talking about, she repeats. And so I picked up group last year and I think I read it in a day. I felt so understood and it was so relatable to me, even though our, our issues are different, but in some ways they're not. So much of the human experience is just ubiquitous right? The feelings that go underneath our behaviors are actually pretty shared. And I found myself really connecting to Christy's story. And I just, I mentioned it several times and then just finally told the crew, I'm like, I think let's put this in book club. There's so much here that we can learn from. There's, it's such a rich tool for discussion and conversation and really even like self-examination. And so we decided to slot it here at the beginning of the year for like obvious reasons. And I'm just loving already the conversation that it has sparked in our private group is awesome. And so let me tell you real quick about Christy before we jump into this interview. And she's delightful, you guys. Christy Tate, she's a Chicago-based writer and essayist, and her work's been published like everywhere. New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, McSweeney's, ugh, dream, everywhere. So her debut memoir, Group, our book, it was published in October of 2020. Reese put it in her book club and I see why. And it was a New York Times bestseller. And I also see why she is not just a vulnerable human who shared her real life story with us, but she's a wonderful writer and a captivating storyteller. And I tell her this, but I was just proud of her for this labor of love that she put into the world. And I know, I mean, if our little group is any indicator the ripple effects of her sincerity and and her transparency are just going to continue to go. And so, so pleased to share this conversation with author and human being extraordinaire, Christy Tate. Christy, welcome to the show. I was just telling you how delighted I am to meet you and how much you're work has just meant to my little community. And I'm really proud of you for writing it in such a transparent way. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's dive in. Let's just get into it. Let's get into group. I have a million things to say. I'm trying to, they're all like, pick me, pick me. Because even though your story is of course, so specific to you, to your personal life, to the, the specific set of issues and pain points that you deal with, it's just all so ubiquitous. You know, we just, there isn't a single human person that doesn't read your story and understand what you're talking about. Like those deep, 
wells of like loneliness and dissatisfaction that just is across the board true. And so we found in our book home community that there was just none of us that couldn't relate none, you know, even though our stories are so different from yours. So at the very beginning of the book, you kind of start out with an interesting dichotomy. So like on one hand, kind of literally on paper, you're doing okay. I mean, you're doing okay. If anybody's like peering into your story, they're going to be like, oh, you know, good on her. You're, you're thriving in law school. You're working on reforming your relationship with food after an eating disorder. But what you bring us into as your readers pretty quickly is what observers couldn't see on the surface of you at that time, which was this like crippling loneliness right? that was essentially plaguing your every day of your life. And so I would love to hear you talk about why you chose to open the book with this and how did it impact the way that you then presented the whole rest of the story? Sure. When I started writing the book, I wanted to answer the question for myself, what happened to me? What happened to me in group? Where was I when I started? Why did I start down this road? And What I could pinpoint was a lifetime of really lethal image management. Like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Not just fine, I'm the best. I am the straight A student, I am a cheerleader, I'm on student government. It was this overachieving that was masking trauma and disordered eating and loneliness and addiction. So that really came to a head when I had, now I had already gone to college And I'd gone to graduate school and then I'd gone to law school and it was time to go to work. And I could see when I received this card that told me I was the first in my law school class, I thought, oh no, oh no, oh no. I was so scared because I felt like I was in that, the proverbial, like the roller coaster and the metal bar just came down and I was going to have an incredible career. I know how to do organizations. I know how to work really, really hard. But none of that was what I truly wanted. My heart's desire was connection with other people and relationships. And it seemed completely incompatible with the course I'd set myself on. And nobody had any idea. And it scared me how far adrift I was and how great I looked. And that, like you called it a dichotomy, the outsides versus the insides was so disorienting. That was scary enough that I reached out for help. And that's how I eventually got to group. Mm. That's so relatable, particularly for those of us, and I'm one of them, who I'm also an achiever. And I never met a prize I didn't want to win. And I got so tickled when you said that because I've had turmoil in my life for the last year and a half or so and went into therapy. And even though it wasn't group therapy, my my therapist was like, I can tell by the way that you are being with me, that you are really looking to get an A plus in therapy. I'm like, yes, (laughs) I want to win therapy. Like that's my goal here. It's really hard to turn it off. Even as you're literally working on restoring and redeeming your own internal mechanisms, even then that whack-a-mole of just that personality type Those of us in book club that relate to your sort of goal-oriented, achievement-oriented side, we were like, ugh, she's reading us our mail. So gross. (laughs) So we're branching off of that. 
our, our perceptions of ourselves are, I mean, they're impacted by a million different things. It isn't just the personality types we were born into. And there's so many factors. And, and then we have limitations placed on our shoulders by another set of facts, society, the expectations of our family or subculture or our work cultures. In most of our cases, the expectations we put on ourselves for a variety of reasons. And so I'd like to hear what you think about how does this internal and external perception of self shape who we are and what we hope to be? And are we stuck in that? Is this what we get handed and we're just going to have to flesh it out? Like, what are, what's your thought on this now, having come through so much in your own life? I definitely think we can work through and we can change. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to write the book. I hope it's a message of hope that there are things that you can do, people you can let into your life, behaviors that could change. That all changes a life. But who I was at the beginning of the story was I was a woman in a body that had endured some actual outside of my body trauma that I had seen and that I'd never worked through, hadn't, didn't have support around. I had disordered eating. I grew up in a very Catholic family. And I, I remember being in second grade and praying so hard for God to give me the stigmata because I wanted to win. I wanted to be the valedictorian of Catholicism oh, and then my sure. appetites when my eating disorder really revved up Mm. Probably by second grade, I was already binging and and wow. secretive, very secretive around food and shame. I didn't mm, even have of to word shame until I went to group, but I was ashamed of my body. So half my prayer would be, God, please give me what you gave St. Teresa. I'll take the stigmata in my head or my hands. And also, please, 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 please give me a skinny body and show me how to stop eating slices of bread. And gosh, those prayers were filled with shame and longing. And I couldn't untangle any of that. And you grow up in America, you have ideas about your body and pleasure and what you deserve. And the one of the biggest pieces for me that was probably a key to really unlocking all of those things was getting in touch with my anger and letting it come up and out in a place that was safe and that could hold me and not reject me. And it was loud. And it was ugly. And you know what? The other, the other piece of this book for me was when I see popular culture representations of therapy, it's like 30 days, one year, a little stint in residential. And for me, it's years, years. And I was two years in and I was still engaging in behaviors that were appalling, appalling. As a feminist, as a woman, as an educated person, why was I dating men who wanted to be alone? I didn't know. I had to work through all of it and it took a long time and the journey was so messy. And so I wanted to, I wanted to give a shout out, a love letter to people whose journeys go up, go two steps up, three steps back, slipping and sliding all the way toward a wholeheartedness that just, you can't just think your way into. It's not possible. It wasn't possible for me. Collectively, like as a book club community, that was one of our favorite things about you and about your book, which was that you were honestly like courageous enough to put the truth on the page. And because that's true for everyone, the tidy story of 
therapy slash healing slash recovery or growth is just, it's so rarely true. It's way messier than that. It's way longer than three months in therapy. And so that narrative out there that you just mentioned actually makes a lot of us feel like a failure when it doesn't work for us. When we're like, I'm still sad. Or like, I'm still dating an unavailable man, you know, whatever the thing is, was it hard for you to include that? I'm curious about you both as like a human person and then a writer who put this all down. Were there parts of your story that you thought, I'm not going to include this. I'm going to leave this out. There's enough in there. Like, I don't have to share this part. I wonder if it was a heavy lift for you to put all those pieces in. The truth is, yes. The truth is absolutely yes. It's never the parts that people think. When I set out to write this, I knew the story because I was obsessed with human connection and why didn't I have it and what was wrong with me. And that's why I went to group. And then I stayed, I'm still there. I knew it was going to include a lot of sex. Like, let's just be real. Like I never balked there, even though maybe I should have, but I never did because I'm like, there's women out there who are going on dates like this and having relationships like this. And I am talking to them. And if there's four of them or 10 of them, I am talking to them and everybody else can either skip it or they can get off on it or whatever people need to do around sex scenes. And I had the courage to do that because I'm in a writing group and the writers that I love go there. And so I'm like, I'm either going to, I mean, I'm all or nothing. I'm either going to write this and go there or not. Where I hesitated, the parts that were scarier for me was about the eating. Originally in the book, I had one little line like, oh, sometimes I eat too many apples. That was my big secret. My writing teacher circled it and was like, what's this? Like, excuse me. Where's the scene of you eating too many apples? And all these years later, I still have shame about it's 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 less shame and more just like, oh God, that baby girl. I mean, totally. she was 30, but I just want to like scoop her up and just say, oh honey, you just ate 12 apples. You need something else. Like I just go tell someone. I want to tell her, go tell someone. Even if you don't go to Dr. Rosen or find a group, I just want her not to carry the secrets of all those apples and the other secrets. But that was harder to story than the like weirdo sex I was having. I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm making it sound like it's a kink book, but like just the unsatisfying, icky totally. that I participated in. Yeah. Ugh, that like hits me right at my heart. I wish we could access that compassion for our younger selves in real time. I've got young adult daughters and I'm like, how can I get them to know this sooner? You know, how can I work in this sense of like compassion and grace into their little minds and hearts as they're just like flopping around out here in the world, trying to sort it out. We're so mean to our own selves. Our future selves are so much nicer to our pain and our struggles and our hurt. We have to talk about Dr. Rosen, of course. Yeah. It's just such a character. I just feel like, of course, just as a reader, I'm like, oh, thank God that was her doctor. Like, I can't <laughs> imagine, you know, there's no, I can't imagine any other doctor in his role as you write, you know, his methods are unconventional. So as someone who really loves therapy, I mean, I am on record as saying everyone needs it go like whatever you have to do to get on the therapist couch, get there. This kind of therapy seems, I mean, frighteningly vulnerable to me. Very. 
This is different. This is different. This has a lot of watching eyes. I mean, it's just different. At several points of your book, I remember just thinking, I don't know if I could do it. Like, I just don't know if I could do it and sit there and say it and be watched while I'm saying, I mean, all of it. So can you pinpoint what it was in you or what was happening in you or what, what was the thing that kept you in that group when so many others would have left? Yeah, I would say probably the prime motivator was I was in so much pain that I couldn't, I couldn't even choke it out. You know, that feeling when you're just like, <clears throat> like you're kind of constipated or you're choking on it. You don't know what the words are. Like, that's how I arrived. And when I got there, I was terrified. I mean, the very first question somebody asked me when I sat down the first day in group, some guy turned to me and asked me how I like to have sex. And right. I kicked straight into people pleaser mode. Like, this is totally, oh, yeah. oh, I can answer this question. I have yeah. no boundaries, which right away is such a signal that I was totally. like giving myself away at every mm. time. And what kept me coming back was one of the things that happened early on was I started to become attached to my group mates. So my book is about my journey and I, I had to take out the parts that don't belong to me. What's not there, but I hope hovers over the edges is they were all going and being brave. And so I could go there and kind of be quiet and survey and decide what, what is this? And I would watch them do their brave work and it inspired me. And I saw them reporting changes. I could see that they had skills I didn't have. I didn't have, I certainly didn't have them in group. And I could hear from their stories that they were successful doctors who knew how to navigate politics or stepdaughters, you know, like all these things I didn't know how to do. I didn't, I had a life of one person and they really gave me the inspiration. Also, and I hope this comes through very early on, I was very stimulated by group we do a ton of laughing. We spend a good portion of every session kind of making fun of Dr. Rosen, who's so strange. He's super, super strange. And so we can be like, what's with the Cosby sweaters, dude? Totally. Yeah. So there was this bonding that was happening, but I found myself looking forward to the sessions, you know, like it felt like a huge glass of water. And then I had to make it last for the rest of the week. And by the time it was the night before my session, I'd feel that parched feeling. Like I couldn't wait to go get my glass of water, which I didn't expect that. And I've seen people come in and say this, mm -mm, bye. Nope. No, thank you. And I get it. And I respect it. And they go off and find their right spot. But there was something about the dynamism and the overstimulation and the price. Oh, here's the other thing any money. I had no money. I was a student. One day I was going to get a payday when I became a lawyer. So I thought, well, this guy and these strange band of people, they'll keep me alive and I'll do this till I can get a quote, real therapist. Sure. I, I couldn't go find some top shelf couch to lie on because I had no money. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, just the necessity kept you in the room, if nothing else. But I, I, I appreciate your take on that, that, that you show that side of group therapy too, because I, for those of us who haven't ever experienced it, it almost feels like all scary, but there is like a beautiful side to it that is communal and almost contagious in its courage that you really can't get when you're the only person in the room 
with your therapist. It's not replaceable, honestly. And so to me, I just feel like you're setting a lot of people free with your personal story to consider a therapeutic environment that may be exactly what they need, like to break through or to pull through. It's a scary one to reach for. It's a new year, beloveds. We made it to 2022. This is a time where some of us may set resolutions or maybe intentions or words for our year. It's a great time to really reflect on where we need to just pull some different levers in our lives. This is why I'm also just so excited to introduce you to the Me Course series, which is a series that I have put out with my incredible team. Our mission here is simple. This is inspirational, educational, and actionable content, as I like to say, for the rest of us. It's not heady graduate level work here, okay? But it is what we all need from finance to building better habits to cultivating simplicity in the name of wellness and more. These are some of the pillars where I personally have seen the most life change in myself and in others. And so with me, course, we are telling you what actually does work. And I do it with some friends, friends who are experts in their respective fields, and they talk you through it too. We've really distilled it all down to the best of the best, a true highlight reel of everything you need to know in real life and how to make it work for you without you needing to commit hours upon hours of your time, which you don't have. Here's what you can expect. Four 15-ish minute sessions, and that's it. But also, as you will see, that is enough. They are packed and condensed without tons of fluff. We also have a whole library of bonus resources to explore and implement and remind you of what you learned. You get it all. Let's start learning together and be here for our lives in this way. So register now at mecourse.org and use the code for the love to save $10 off already discounted prices. This is the best deal. I can't wait. Mecourse.org. Join us. This idea of community, it's just so vital, right? Studies have proven again and again that people in community have markedly improved physical, mental, and emotional health. So in the Gin Hatmaker Book Club, we talk about books every month, of course, yes. And we have all the bells and whistles to support that book talk. It's incredible. But what really we love the absolute most is each other. <laughs> Our book clubbers support each other like in the hard times. We celebrate each other in the good times. It's like magic. These are real, authentic, genuine connections that happen in our private face group, but also in real life. You guys, we have local chapters in cities and towns across the entire U.S. where members have cultivated, I kid you not, lifelong in-person friendships. They found their people. The sharing and caring that goes on in this community is just breathtaking, and you wouldn't believe the beauty that lives inside of this group. We want you to find the community and connection we all need, and we are waiting for you with open arms. So, I mean, come for the great books, but stay for the even greater community of women. Find out more at jenhatmakerbookclub.com.
speaking of scary, because I just don't historically do well with this, in some of the group sessions, not a word was spoken. Oh, I, I like I am not good with silence. I like a lot of noise, a lot of activity, a lot of motion, a lot of stimulus. So can you talk more about that whole experience and what you discovered to probably be the power of silence? And how is that impactful to our own healing journeys instead of a waste of our money? Like, why does that matter? What's the good part of that? Wow, that is a great question. And whenever I think about the sessions where nobody talks, I feel like sweaty, sweaty pits. You sweaty. Know, like, ah! Yes. <laughs> I too, I share with you, I like noise and chaos and bluster coming out of my mouth and it's not coming out of yours. And I think that there's important goodness about my verbosity, but I also, I don't flex the muscle of silence unless somebody pushes me there, I more likely to fill. So, and what I really noticed early on was when there would be long stretches of silence and you just sort of feel the taffy of the group going very, very thin as it stretches out, I would always just feel my anxiety rising, rising, rising. And what I learned in group was be curious, be curious. Why are you so anxious? You just talked for 15 minutes about what's going on at law school and the drama in the student lounge. Why do you need to now pick up something else? And what does it mean? What does it mean to sit in silence in this circle that sometimes feels sacred, sometimes totally profane, but what on the backside of being able to tolerate silence, what I learned was there's something for me, consummate performer, achiever, get in your face, find out your problems, try to fix them, dazzle you with my funny problems. When I was able to sit in silence on the back end of that, I was like, oh, what if I don't have to do anything? What if I don't even have to one single word out of my mouth and I get to be held and seen and a part of? I have always in my mind believed my belonging was contingent on a whole list of things, conscious and unconscious, just sitting there, staring at Patrice, glancing at Brad, nobody was doing anything. And to be relieved of my performative duties has been an incredibly sacred thing. Now, if it happened all the time, I'd be like, so we're in a meditation group and I'm my prices here. It's a rare thing. And I honestly sort of wish it would happen more so I could have more flex more of that muscle that says you don't have to do one freaking thing to be here, to belong, to be held. That's a pretty sacred message that's hard for me to hold because I'm, I'm pretty invested in another way of being. That's a really profound thing that you are saying right now. And I mean, even as you were sort of talking through that, I was thinking, I don't know if there's another way for us to learn that other than to experience it. I mean, you can tell me you can say to me, Jen, you can belong without like doing a dog and pony show all the time. You know, you, you can do that. You don't have to always be hustling. You don't have to always be winning. You're loved as you are. My brain can hear you say that, but I can't get that to crack through. Like that is a really hard thing to learn when, as you say, you are used to being in the world in a different way. So the fact that you were kind of forced, forced to learn that, because what else are you going to do? You're going to have to sit there and learn something is like really powerful that that's what rose up for you. And 
that kind of work has to undo so much too. Did you find like in your, in your journey over the course of the thing, was it harder for you to unlearn and unravel old destructive toxic patterns and behaviors, or was it harder to learn new, healthy, connected behaviors? Which is that a fair question? Maybe there's not a, maybe there's not an answer to that. Oh my God. No, I love, love, love that question. No one has asked me that. And I love it because I have discussed this with Dr. Rosen. When he told me my first prescription was to call Rory at night and tell her everything I'd eaten. And I just was like, I would have rather like stood up in group and taken off all my clothes. Like I just have so much shame around eating. I don't even want to tell you what I ate. Also because I was binging on apples at night and was scared to tell her every night. And I'm not going to get, I didn't believe I would get better. So this was going to be an exercise in humiliation every single day. So I said to him, like, why is this so hard? I think of myself as someone who's eager and willing, and I'm willing to do anything, but this feels so awful. And he said, you have incredible discipline when it comes to stopping bad behaviors. You have great discomfort when it comes to learning to do a new behavior. So, so I was like, oh, that just hit me between the eyes. And then when it came to my dating life, I'm smart. I, I, I can see a red flag coming. Sure. All can. You don't have to be smart to see a red flag. That's so right. If shows up drunk and I know I have issues with alcohol, yep. we have a problem. That's right. I need to date him for two years, which I did. So I would be like, I'm so confused. I'm so confused. And then, you know, I'd go on one date with a nice guy who I was like, ew, ew. Like, Mm-hmm. Ooh, just like, ooh, 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 my skin is crawling, even though I know he's, he's good for me. Right. And that was, so for me, I do understand myself as a person who taking in a good thing, absorbing healthy behaviors has been much, much harder than like letting go of a razor blade, but picking up, you know, a, a nice man to date or a healthy friendship that is, that requires a lot more from me. Some of our like darkest patterns are the source of our literal unhappiness, but they're at least familiar. You know, there's something to familiarity that holds us fast because we pretty much know what to expect out of it. And we know how we're going to operate inside that mechanism and there's no surprises. And so I, I just relate to what you're saying right now, that it's the new, the new, not only is a, is a muscle we've never used, it's an unknown quantity. What's what happens when you date a nice man who's good to you and he's a healthy person? You know, what does that mean? What is, how does that going to feel? And so let's talk about the relationships a little bit as you just brought that up. You know, you're again, to my earlier point, pretty open about this and your past relationships, the good, the bad, the really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know going in for sure that that was going to have to be part of the story? Did you add that later? Because you could have centered your story on some of the other things. You you could have, and it was still would have been really full of the work that you did. And so I'd like to hear your thought process as you really just laid it all down. Yes. I, I really knew that the relationships were going to have to figure in prominently in part because And I really struggled with this because 
there's the there's the actual me and what actually happened and then there was the me that I wanted to be on the page sure like I wanted to be like yeah Above it. I wanted to be uh-huh. above wanting a boyfriend. That is totally. I, so early oh drafts. Early drafts were very superficial and they were that was always the feedback I got. And I was like, well, that's because I don't want to tell you the truth, you know? And the truth is, I didn't want to die alone. I was bereft every single day about watching all my friends get engaged, have babies, have these wonderful trips. And I'm, I'm just so, so, so single. And I didn't want to be a person who wrote a book about wanting a boyfriend. And obviously my story is a lot more than that, but I had tried to make myself seem more dynamic and more feminist, you know, in quotes. And finally, somebody said to me, this older woman who's a writer, she said to me, what are you doing? It's okay to want what you want. You wanted a relationship that doesn't make you not a feminist. And it just like broke me free. And then I realized, well, you know, I did spend those years in group talking about how to straighten out my romantic life. And that was, there was a lot of heat there and a lot of the journey. And when I realized, when I think about people ask me all the time, oh, aren't you too dependent? This is also weird. And I, I can sort of be like, oh, am I? I don't know. I take a step back and I look at my life and I look at the, the parts of my life that I most treasure. They weren't here before that. And that's my husband and my children. And I was not on the path to have this life. I just, I just wasn't. And that to me, the proof is sort of in the pudding and other people don't have to do it. It's not a book telling people to go to group therapy, but it is a story about what it took to change my life. And it seemed once I made the decision, okay, I'm going to write in detail about these romantic foibles <laughs> and these antics, then I could feel it. The story came alive. Thank you for telling me that. Thanks for sharing that, that you tried to keep a lid on that at first. I get it that it took a couple of passes until you were like really honest about that and that it didn't, it doesn't make you a lesser feminist or a lesser woman. There's nothing wrong with wanting love in your life. I just deeply identify with what you're saying. So if you've been following along here for a while, really on any of my channels, you'll know that one of my favorite go-to style brands is Able. Nine times out of 10, the chances are that I have Able on my body in some form or fashion. But here's the thing. If Able is new to you, this is what I want you to hear that is so important. They are an ethical brand with everything you could possibly want to wear or accessorize with. I've believed in this company and worn their stuff from literally the very start, more than 10 years now. Because not only do they check the box on my cute, comfy, cozy categories, but they also empower women by employing them as a solution to end poverty. They are deeply devoted to quality, both in the products they make and in the quality of life they work to provide. Able even gave me the opportunity to design some custom items with them recently, including like a signature scarf and an elephant necklace that represents the symbol of the beautiful power of a community of women. You can 100% feel good about investing in Able. All their stuff looks good and it does good. Check out all their classics and new arrivals at livefashionable.com. 
You're going to be obsessed with this brand if you aren't already. It's fashion with an amazing cause and backed by incredible business practices. You can save 20%, you guys, site-wide with my code 20GIN at livefashionable.com. So that's 2020GIN at livefashionable.com. I want to go back to something you touched down on at the very beginning of this interview, because at one point in the book, Dr. Rosen, also, he celebrates your anger, the feelings that you describe as ugly and spewing. And so I love that. Like, I love that as somebody who was also conditioned to keep the temperature in the room stable at all times anger has always been like a trigger for me. Like something's off the rails. If I'm mad, I need to hurry up and wrap that up or tamp that down, or I don't know what, but I don't get permission to that. And so I want to hear you talk about this because you've worked through this in real, in real life. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that felt like for you initially, and then what it created in you from that point to, to today? Yes. Yes. So like you, I grew up with lots of messages about who gets to be angry. And I knew very clearly it wasn't me, not a little girl. Oh, absolutely not. Not a good God fearing little girl who's a good girl. And I was, I was, if I was nothing else, I was always going to be a good girl. And in my family, there's a lot of fear around anger as well. And everything's the lid is on and the lid's on tight. And so Looking back now, of course, I can see, well, bulimia is for me. My bulimia was all about rage and not to mention like staying far away from people because when people got closer and I got to intimacy, I have these feelings come up. One of them was anger. And I thought, well, if I share, if I get angry and if I share my anger, I'll have no one in my life. And those were my operating beliefs. So I just, when things, when I, people would get too close and then the heat would rise, I would just back out and just cut and run. And when I got to group, everybody who had been there longer was already super comfortable. And they knew like, someday we may come in here and laugh. Someday I may pop off. The same thing could happen in a a 90 minute session. And I remember the first time two members had a giant fight and I just burst into tears. Like I was shaking. I was shaking like, like a little kid. Like what is going to happen? I didn't have the narrative. I didn't know. I'd never seen that before. And of course, by the end of the session, they're hugging and they walk out together, arms around each other, making plans to go get some pad pie. And I'm like, oh my God. And so first I had to get comfortable watching other people's. And then, and then my own anger, I feel mostly grateful. I think that my, my first eruptions were at Dr. Rosen. I pay him a lot of money. He should be able to take whatever I dish out. <laughs> That's right. That doesn't mean it's easier, but part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the checks are for, buddy. That's right. The very first time, like a tiny bit eked out and I was so mad at him. And I said to him, you are like Gary Condit. And it was this, like, what, what, what kind of insult is that? You know, I was mad. That's so random and hilarious. Super random. And and I was really mad at him. And and then someone's like, are you Chandra Levy? Cause like what, whatever. Anyway, so I'm like, I'm like not even good at getting the anger out. And I see that. Yeah. Right. And Dr. Rosen just, he was beaming at me. He was so proud of me and he was rubbing his heart. That's what, like, if you ever say, oh, you're a jerk, 
he'll rub his heart. And he was just rubbing his heart. Like the way you see a parent, if their child just took their first steps, which is what he was seeing in me. He knew long before I, like when in the first five minutes of our discussion, he probably knew I was sitting on a lifetime of anger that needed to come out and he was going to roll out the red carpet for it. And I had to learn little by little and I could do it with him. And then I was like, Oh, look at me. I'm, I'm cured. And then he sort of forecasted, well, you know, sometime you're going to have to have a fight with a group mate. If you think, if you think you're going to have an intimate relationship with a partner. And I was like, Oh no, no, because I have ninja skills at avoiding fights. I'm sure so I can people please. And I can twist myself <laughs> into like a 40 sided pretzel to avoid a fight. And he was like, maybe you shouldn't do that. And then I did, I did have fights with group mates and I cannot, if not, if I got nothing else out of grief, to be able to understand anger is part of the rainbow of who I am. It's part, it's an emotion. Why is it less bad? Why do we make it so dangerous? It's not dangerous. It's part of the human makeup and what we do to little girls around anger. I just, I can't, I mean, I don't think boys fare that well either, frankly, but, but I was a little girl. I'm raising a girl. I'm attuned to that. And I think it's, it's, it's how we divorce little girls from their power and their intimacy and their pleasure until I could express my rage. My body just couldn't even deal with pleasure. Like it's all connected and we, we can't keep cutting ourselves and our girls off from this source of power. Mm, That is so good. That is so good. That is so relatable. The work that my therapist did with me is from the get-go, because you're right, they get our numbers real early. You know, they size us up real quick. And I think I'm being evasive and charming, you know, so I can win. And she's like, I know you. But what she has drilled into me that's taken a long time to actually like implant is sad is not bad. Mad is not bad. I'm like, isn't it? She's like, no, it's not bad. Mad is not bad. And so that alone, just trying to figure out, well, if it's not bad, what is it? Learning that it's a teacher, it's a mirror, it's my body protecting me has just been awesome. Like what a liberating way to live. Like we get to say that, we get to feel that, we get to express it. And then when you're surrounded with healthy people who love you more or less, it's not a deal breaker. Like I always thought, you know, no one dies. Like we can have conflict resolution and like move on. It's just shocking. This is like a shocking development in my adult life here in my forties. Let me ask this before we start to wrap it up here. You of course found yourself in a part of three separate groups. So looking back on it now, this would just be a speculation on your part, but do you think that you would be where you are today if you'd only stayed with one group? Do you think that you would have been where you are today if you did five groups? I'm curious about that number and how you see that being sort of the secret sauce if you do in your particular story. Yeah, that's a great question. No one's asked me that either. I think that submitting to a group whether it was once a week or twice a week, I think that the skill set that I developed, which was 
being honest, letting people see me and know me and all the feeling work, I think I could have gotten here. I think I could have gotten here with one or two times a week. I really do believe that. And people often ask me, like, could you have gotten where you are today if you had a really good individual therapist? That one, I'm a little bit less like, I don't want to take anything away from people who have like kick-ass relationships with their individual therapists because I've seen people like turn their lives around and flourish and and absolutely transform. I do know for me, the couple times when I like dabbled in individual, what has happened is I did a lot of performing and it's impossible for me to imagine being in a situation on a one-on-one with a therapist who is like an authority figure. I can't imagine like writhing on the floor and pulling out my hair if I didn't have roommates around who A, did that before I did and B, held my hand. That feels like that's a level of intimacy that I have no doubt other people achieve with it. They do all the melting down they need to do, but I'm just like, ooh, I kind of need my siblings around to sort of mm, help me. Good way to put it. You go all the way down to the well of me. You know, I have friends who, you know, the whole Rosen world is very, I mean, incestuous, which is not the nicest way to put it. Interconnect. That's a better <laughs> there way. There we go. That's nice. And I have really close friends who, who they go once a week and they never signed up for like the full Monty package that I did. And they have wonderful, flourishing, dynamic lives and lives I, I can see that it all works for them. I, and I know a few people who went more often than I did. And I, I just wonder, maybe there is a sweet spot where there's some diminished return. I also, when I had my first baby, my daughter, I was still going three times a week. And all of a sudden, it just became really clear to me that I needed to be at home and that I was like kind of hiding in group and scared to let go. And that's not a reason to stay. So I cut down and it just became very clear. When it was clear, it was clear, you know. That's good. I've got a couple of questions for you from book club members. Your book was a source of just like, constant dialogue. And we're only like halfway through the month. We only got, they only got the book two weeks ago and most people powered through it, sat down and just like, it's hard to put down, you know, cause we're cheering for you and we want to see where your story is going. We're connected to the people you're connected to. It's really just hard to quit. So we already have like really strong conversation going around your book and some of the things that you shared. So here's a question from one of our members. Her name's Jeannie Siriani. She says, many of us had the thought that the therapist's homework was extremely unconventional at times. Looking back at it, what are your thoughts? Oh, it's a hundred percent unconventional. And I, I knew it at the time. I wasn't a therapist, obviously I was a lawyer, but even back then when I was sort of in the closet about being in therapy and group therapy, I was like, this is super, super weird. Like call someone and bookend your masturbation. The other clue I had that this was super unconventional is many times throughout the years in my group, there was a therapist who was their own practicing therapist. And Dr. Rosen would trot out one of his prescriptions and they would just groan like, oh my God, don't tell Christy to do that. Oh my gosh. So where, where I really learned how deeply unorthodox his methods were, when as I'm touring with this book, I've talked to tons of therapists and therapy groups and boy, you want to see some side eye? 
talk to them about Dr. Rosen. It, totally. it makes therapists very, very uncomfortable. Interesting. I feel really, I mean, I'm happy to have these conversations. I think any conversation about mental health is, is, is a conversation worth having. And Me too. I'm certainly not saying he's the end all be all. And I can, I can certainly respect the professional fear <laughs> that this brings up in people who practice differently. And I think it's also, I feel a little bit of, I feel some joy when I see therapists sort of get shaken up and they have to ask themselves, why do we have the, we have, who do they serve? Do they serve me and my ego? Do they serve my patients? Is it just what my teacher did? Like, I think these are good conversations, but there's no getting around that this was super freaky. (laughs) Super freaky. It sure was. Here's another question from Rebecca. She says, Christy, having been a part of a group therapy community where privacy is not only not upheld, but it's discouraged as they try to disrupt secrecy, do you find that you are now able to honor privacy in your personal life, either your own or when someone shares something private, or has this new thinking on the other side of privacy created any bumps in your relationships? That is, that is a very, very good question. People are very nervous about the privacy issue. And I very much understand that. And just to be clear, everybody's name and their identifying characteristics have been changed in the book. For sure. Except for mine. So I do make a distinction between secrets and privacy. And I think other people absolutely deserve their privacy. And I can feel most of the time, I can feel the difference in my body between and secrecy. Secrecy means I'm holding your shame for you. And I have agreed to a bargain that is not, it is not good for me. And privacy means we've got fences up to protect people's personal information. I don't always do it right. And the person that I'm interacting with doesn't always agree with where I draw the lines. What I've learned to do is communicate very clearly. If somebody tells me something, I let them know like, oh, this is feeling heavy, like there's some shame here for me. I'm going to need to talk about it with my group, with my husband. I don't have to take everything to group, but I let my, I let somebody know that what's, what my experience is. I let them know in advance. And sometimes if somebody's telling me something about work and they'll say to me, like somebody who's not in my therapeutic community and they'll say, well, this is just between us. And I have to stop them and say, I, I'm not really a just between us kind of person because I don't know what you're about to tell me and I don't know how it's going to feel and I'm not available to carry toxic secrets. So wow, you, either that's need good. To, you either need to that's good. not tell me details that you don't want me to go tell A, my therapy group or B, my husband or my friend or whatever. Like I might need to have a process around this that you may not like. So maybe don't tell me whose name, maybe don't tell me their children's name. That's really good. It requires a lot of communication. I found to do most of the things in my life well. I would love to just like be on automatic, but there's nuance. There's there's conversations that need to be had and revisited over and over and over again. But I I think it's very important to make distinctions between privacy mm-hmm. and secrecy. So good. What a good boundary. I, I can't think of five people in my whole world that have ever practice that, you know, it almost, we almost feel incumbent to hold everyone else's burdens. 
And so that is a really powerful way to be in community that probably ultimately that boundary is good for them too, that person to really consider what it is they're putting on someone else's shoulders. One last question from a book club member. This is from Krista Schof. She said, Christy, can you fill in the gaps from the end of the book to now? Are you um, a lawyer and an author? Are you still in groups? What does Dr. Rosen think of all this? Is his practice bursting at the seams now? You know, we got a lot of questions. Yeah. I, I don't, that just brings me so much joy. Okay. Yes, I'm still in group. I go to one group, but we meet twice a week. So that feels like a great loophole, right? I'm in sure. <laughs> and it's many of the, many of the folks in my current group are in the book and we've had a very long process with this. There are, you know, these are people, nobody comes to group therapy hoping one of their group mates will write a book about what the work we do. It's gotta so, be true. Yeah. So I've been very forthcoming. Like the day I started writing, I got the idea to write the book for someone in group and then sent them drafts all along and I let them pick their pseudonyms if they wanted. And they were very much a part of the group project. Right. But I'll be honest, there are times when we have gone gone into a session and somebody's just pissed off, annoyed. Christy's exploiting what we do here. Christy's going to get rich. Ha ha. Um, Uh Or by, by, by on our backs, essentially. Mm, Yeah. Lots of conversation about that. And then, and then sometimes you just like, can Christy please shut up about her book? Like, I, I get that, you know, it's kind of how, like, how they felt when I was like, oh, I dated another terrible man. Can Christy shut up, please? So it's taken on a life of its own. Like, it's almost like the book group is part of the fabric of our group because they've been with me this whole time. And Dr. Rosen, at one time, the summer before it came out, we were all talking about it. And someone said to me, Patrice, she said, Christy, ask Dr. Rosen how he feels about the book stop guessing. And I was like, oh, I was so scared. I was like, Dr. President, how do you feel about the book? And then I like hid my eyes. Right. And we're on zoom because it was during the pandemic. And he was like, open your eyes, look at me. And he said, I feel happy, proud, and grateful. Hmm. And I just was like, and then he was like, breathe, breathe, like take (laughs) it. And I'm really glad that someone told me to ask that question because I got to hear it. And I'm no longer working as a lawyer. I'm a full-time writer and therapy patient. <laughs> yes. You know, I'm a mom trying to get a pandemic with school-age kids. And it's a lot. Like, we all have a lot on our plates. So I feel grateful. I get to go to group and tell them what this feels like, this time in our global life. And they've we, we hold each other. We're all in different places. And it means a lot to me to have a place to go right now. I love that. Okay. That brings me to my final question for you, which is a two-parter. So first, we always like to know what our authors are reading, what you love. What are you loving right now? Have you read something that's like a must read recently or even an old time favorite? It doesn't matter. So we'd love to know what you're reading that you would like to recommend to us. And then also we want to know, as you just said, you're a full-time writer now, what are you working on? Is that something you can talk about and tell us what's on your desktop right now? Sure. So for the books, I'm I'm always reading two at one time, something current because I like to stay current. And then I'm trying to fill in the gaps from some of the classic, not classics, like what I missed because I was in the American school system. Okay. Uh, so sure. Just read Bright Burning Things. Oh, okay. Good title. Lisa Harding. It's so beautiful. It was a Jenna book club pick. Okay. 
about an alcoholic woman in Ireland, single mother, who's really, really sinking in her alcoholism and trying to hold it all together with her single in her as a single mom and her son. And she's making really bad decisions because she's very, very sick. And we see her through the book go to rehab and try to get well for her son and for herself and how complicated that is and how finances and poverty and not having a support system makes it really hard to recover from addiction. And it's beautifully written. And I think she really nails the sickness of addiction. And I felt it's a tricky thing, right? Books right now about moms are so hot and I'm I'm so scared of them, but this one does a really good job showing how a sick person can make a decision. You can still root for a person who is sick, even if they've done something to a child that's like hard to picture for myself. It felt like it it tapped into something about compassion that I was glad to find in my heart, you know. And then one of the, I keep hearing writers that I love talk about the work of Tony K. Bambara. She's an incredible writer. Her short stories are so alive. She was a Black writer who was a professor, an activist. Her stories are like nothing I have ever read. And I'm so mad that I had to read Jack London and Charles Dickens and all these white guys. And this is the most alive thing. I mean, I would love to get a 13-year-old Christy and all friends and let them just open them up to this language and these stories that were so different from my suburban Dallas childhood, et cetera. So those are the two great suggestions. We will run those up the flagpole in our group too. I love that. You're so right. When, when I think about the, the syllabus that was handed to us, American public school kids, this, the omissions are just, is they're endless. Okay. And then finally, what are you working on? Oh, yeah. So I have another memoir that's going to come out probably in 2023. And so as readers who know group, I spend a lot of time talking about my romantic relationships and shenanigans. When I you know, got settled in my marriage, I looked up and was like, oh, I have some mess in my female relationships, like a lot of mess and a lot of work I needed to do around a friend to other women. And I really uncovered a lot of blocks and I tell that story. And right now the book is called BFF. That's (laughs) Um, great. It it might change, but that should be coming out in 2023. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to talk to you about that one. That's fantastic. How, how far along are you on it? I wrote the whole thing and the publisher bought it. And so we're going to go into edits and I'm not, it's, it's interesting. Like most people are like, Oh, it's probably so scary to write about sex. And it certainly was, there's a lot of scary things in group. There's something so much more vulnerable, not to be able to hide behind. Oh, ha ha ha. This is the kind of sex I had. Like there's no, I'm so much more exposed in this one, even though I keep my clothes on in every single scene. Totally. This one's all heart. I mean, yes. Oh, that's, I can't wait to read it Um, because you're such a good writer. You're such a good storyteller. It's not just that you've lived this really profound story of sort of healing and growth, but you're really good at telling the story. You're a really, really good writer. I'm so pleased to hear that you are now a career writer. I just think that's the a fantastic path for you. And there's always just more to say, there's always more to write about. And so I'm happy that you've picked up that thread. That's going to be, that's a pain point for women. 
Like that is a very shared pain point is adult friendships. And so I can't wait to see how you sort of unpack that one. Okay. Let me just tell you again, thank you so much for being who you are in the world and for writing this down in a book for the rest of us to read and to learn from. It held up a mirror to a lot of our stuff that we're still like, ugh, why'd you have to say that? And it's just a really wonderful gift to the world. And so thanks for letting me put it in book club. And you've got a whole group of like a handful of new thousand fans. So we'll be signing up for your next book. Don't worry about it. Thank we'll be you. first in line. I really appreciate it. It's awesome to talk to you. I love the work that you do. And thanks. I'm happy our paths have crossed. Thank you. Me too. Thank you, Christy. Thank you. Take care. You too. <laughs> 